We'd all love to spend more time outside, see more birds, have more fun, connect with friendly people. Our happiness depends on it, but modern life pushes us away from nature. Enter Birda. Birda is the new free app that boosts your bird watching experience, fun birding challenges, leaderboards, and cool badges turn sing bird life into a game. And better still, all the sightings go to help bird conservation. Come bird with Birda. Sign up today. It's free. You can find Birda, B-I-R-D-A, on all app stores. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm Nate Swick. Birding is in the news again, and I have to say it is fascinating to watch how rapidly these national news items have gone from look what these goofy birders are doing to really sophisticated and thoughtful pieces on birding and bird conservation over the last few years. There's definitely been a real sea change. This time it has to do with a massive bird migration event in the Chicago area. We're talking millions of birds. You might remember the famous Tadasak eBird checklist from a couple years back that included counts of hundreds of thousands of individual warblers at a migration hotspot on the St. Lawrence River in Quebec. Well, imagine that in the third largest city in the United States. Friend of the ABA, Marky Mutchler, and others shared an eBird checklist from Promontory Park on the Lake Michigan shore in the city of Chicago with 25,000 palm warblers, 142,000 yellow rumped warblers, videos of just unending waves of birds, mostly unidentifiable passerines, moving southward along the lake shore with the sounds of city traffic in the background. It's incredible stuff. It was one of those days where the winds broke and pushed all these migrating birds east where they, they hit the lake and they turned south en masse. Of course, such a large movement through a major city with a lot of glass buildings causes problems, predictable problems. And that was made viscerally clear with the reports that nearly 1,000 dead birds were discovered the morning of this migration event around a single building, the McCormick Place Lakeside Center, a mostly glass structure located on the shore of Lake Michigan near downtown Chicago, notably just up the shore from where Markey and friends submitted that extraordinary checklist. The proportions of species impacted were, notably, quite similar to the birds observed to the south, mostly palm warblers, yellow rump warblers, and Tennessee warblers, along with a mix of other species. Birders in Chicago know that the McCormick Center is a notorious bird strike magnet. It has been for decades. It is not a tall building, but it is a third of a mile of reflective surface facing the lake to the east and a park to the south. What happens is when the sun comes up over the lake, the trees and the plantings from the ironically named McCormick Place Bird Sanctuary are reflected in the east and south facing glass, which looks to a migrating bird like more vegetation, more open skies. The sort of thing has been happening for years. This was only the largest single bird strike phenomenon in memory, but a thousand birds are killed annually at this structure. This is, I feel the need to emphasize, only one building though it is a particularly dangerous one. For what it's worth, an additional 1,000 birds were collected by bird collision monitors in the rest of the downtown area. McCormick Place issued a statement. It's not particularly noteworthy. It's what you'd expect. But Chicago Audubon has noted that exhibitors at the building have the option to close curtains at night. Perhaps that option needs to be exercised just as a default, particularly at this time of year. It is inexcusable that the building is allowed to be lit up during migration, however aesthetically pleasing it might be. 
It is especially notable as our ability to accurately predict these bird migration events has never been more precise. Those who follow BirdCast from Cornell will probably recognize that the entire middle of the continent has been lit up like a Roman candle for much of last week. The scale of this migration event was known ahead of time. The ability to get this information to those who can turn off lights, curtain off windows should be streamlined. This is a no-brainer. Perhaps with the increased serious attention given to these issues by every media outlet, this can finally happen. On the show today, in 2016, Dorian Anderson undertook what was easily the most impressive big year I've certainly ever heard of, a cross-country bicycle trek slash birding year that was exhausting in every possible way a thing can be exhausting. He has written about that year along with the professional and personal struggles that led him to it in his book, Birding Under the Influence, he joins me to talk about it all after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the beginning of October 2023. What a week in Rare Birds. We start with more flamingo news as we have for geez, an entire month now. Maryland is the latest state to host American flamingos during this current phenomenon. Notably, this would be the state's second record not the first, as I wrote in the weekly RBA last week. Birds are still being seen across a half dozen states at present, with perhaps the most exceptional new sighting of the period coming from a riverside in the Missouri Ozarks. That would be Missouri's second of this flamingo eruption. About a week after photographs of an unidentified Emberiza bunting were taken in Squamish, British Columbia, in a previous episode I called this a Paulus's bunting, though that identification is still being discussed, a confirmed Paulus's bunting was well photographed in Victoria, British Columbia. At this time, it is unknown whether this is the same individual or a second bird, though both seem about equally likely. In any case, this would be BC's first record and the first for the ABA area away from Alaska, which would make it a Canada first as well. Just across the border in Washington comes the discovery of that state's first record of Cassin's Sparrow, unsurprisingly, along the coast of Clallam County, which is a bit of a rarity magnet for the state. Cassin's Sparrow is a species that tends to be nomadic during particularly dry years in the Great Basin, as we've seen this past summer. Speaking of the Great Basin, a royal turn in Clark County, Nevada, represents a first for that state, notably Minnesota, also recorded a first royal turn not long ago. One wonders if flamingos were not the only species blown about by Hurricane Adalia. Lest we forget the ongoing Limpkin invasion across the continent, West Virginia pops up with a state first in Lewis County. The species had previously come as close to the Maryland side of the Potomac River right on the border, though this one is well in West Virginia. And up to Massachusetts, where a Virginia's warbler was seen in Barnstable County, representing a first record. Funnily enough, this western warbler has come tantalizingly close in previous years with records in neighboring states like Rhode Island, New York, and New Hampshire. And up to Alaska, where the birding season comes to a close with the ABA area's second record of Icterine warbler on St. Paul Island. The ABA's first record was only last year from St. Lawrence Island to the north. This species, which breeds in Eastern Europe and winters in Sub-Saharan Africa, was a pretty unexpected vagrant last year, so it's even more shocking that it was seen now in consecutive falls. Those are the highlights for this past week, but for the full list, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash RBA. You can also follow along with all the Rare Bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook or on ABA Community. In 2014, Dorian Anderson pushed pause on his life, which at the time included a career in neuroscience research, a burgeoning relationship, and the ongoing struggles with drug and alcohol addiction for an ABA area big year, but not just any big year, 
one that was entirely self-propelled. A big year, plus a cross-country trek by bike, something that had never been attempted at that scale before that I know of, and not since, as far as I know. Uh, he recounts the year birding and overcoming addiction in a new memoir out this fall, Birding Under the Influence, Cycling Across America in Search of Birds and Recovery. He is here to talk about it. Dorian, welcome. Congrats on the book. Thanks, man. Stoked to be here, Nate. Uh, it was a labor of love. I think that anybody who has who has written a book knows that you think, okay, this will take two or three years, and then it takes it takes double that. So <laughs> no, I remember when I first met you uh, in when we were on some fan trip Columbia, to Columbia, right. and you were talking about, oh, you had just finished uh, maybe you know twelve, fourteen months prior, you just finished the the whole bike tour. And you were like, I'm going to put this in a book. I don't know how long it's going to take, but I'm going to get there eventually. And lo and behold, here we are, 2023. It's here. Yeah, yeah, like eight years later <laughs> yeah. or something. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, life happens. And For sure. Especially the last few years since I've been doing a lot more guiding. It's like, mm-hmm. it's been hard to write. It's like I guide for two weeks and then I'm home for a week. And it's like that time is split up, like recapping the previous tour. And yeah. Getting ready for the next one. So it's been, it's been a labor of love, but it, it's equal parts like celebration and like relief i just Uh, feel like and now i get now i get to do stuff like this and like the story is out there and it'll be really interesting to see to see how it's received because i I think it will be people will enjoy it for not just birding reasons as as we'll discuss i'm sure writing is really tough like if if you're kind of breaking it up on this you know tour back home it's hard to get in the headspace to be able to really put the put your thoughts into paper because there's a lot of introspection in this book and I imagine that takes some time to get to that point where you're you're feeling comfortable and and to put this stuff on paper. Yeah, I think the hardest part for me is is that like a, I, as a scientist, I was trained to convey information as as concisely and clearly <laughs> and without emotion. And so I didn't take English in college. Like all mm-hmm. I did was science and math, like all the way through. And so I didn't know how to build build characters. I didn't know how to develop a narrative. Uh, I didn't know how to build tension. I didn't know how to write dialogue. I mean, I read a bunch of memoirs at the outset to kind of get an idea of what I liked and what I didn't like, but it still took like months and months of fumbling around and some editorial help, even when I thought I was finished to kind of yeah. shape things in, into into uh, a really, what I think, functional and, and what I think is a compelling narrative. So no what I hope will be a compelling narrative. No, I, but it was hard. Like I had to relearn. I had to learn skills, which I, I didn't have. <laughs> I wasn't a writer before I did this. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but I want to I want to start back in the beginning, sort of. Can you can you talk about where you were in your life before you started this big year and why a bicycling big year was such an appealing idea for you that you, you know, couldn't get it out of your head? Yeah, so I think that I think that it's important that people understand. So I, I was a birder as a young kid, and mm-hmm. I kind of envisioned this career as a, as an ornithologist slash birder until I was around sixteen or seventeen years old, and then I discovered alcohol. And there is alcoholism in my family, um, mm-hmm. and so there was the genetic predisposition, and then there were some insecurities that like kind of helped create the perfect storm. And so for the next thirteen years, through the remainder of my time at prep school, through my undergrad at Stanford, through my pre-doctoral work at Harvard, and through most of my PhD at NYU, I was a raging alcoholic. And then at each Mm -hmm. step along that trajectory, I heaped on more drugs going from like alcohol, starting with alcohol, then you had marijuana, and then ecstasy got in the mix, and then cocaine got in the mix, and then ketamine, and then methamphetamine, and the whole whole nine yards, cocaine being uh, the biggest problem. And so I, through this whole thing, I, 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 
I kind of envisioned this career in academia where I could keep doing these things because I was really mm-hmm. good at school. I, I don't want to say I was smart because that's different than being good at school. I, I was very good at school. And so point is, is that I didn't think about my future beyond like, man, I can just keep partying like in perpetuity in academia. And through a series of events that are described in the book and that I don't want to go completely through right now, I ended up getting sober right towards the end of graduate school. Um, and I accepted a postdoctoral position that was at Mass General, but also dovetailed a lot with Harvard Medical School. And so my research was went really well as a graduate student, but kind of fell apart when I was a postdoc. And I kind of had this midlife crisis where I'm like, damn, I don't, what am I doing with my life? Like, I don't want to spend it in a lab, but I've pushed like 16 years into the most like ridiculously awesome science and education that a person could hope to have. So folding, it wasn't just like I was folding some temp job and walking away. I, I pushed so much time into this and I hadn't, I hadn't done any thinking about like what I wanted beyond, beyond science and drinking, even though I'd like conquered the drinking thing a few years earlier. So the bike idea was like, man, this, this gives me a chance to go and like sort myself out and like Mm -hmm. reset my entire life and think about like what I want moving forward. And big years are cool. Like whether you fly around, drive around, whatever, like they're a great undertaking, but where I was in my life and the fact that I was 35 years old and I was healthy and I said, you know, like, I want to do something different. Like I want a real adventure. Like I want, I want to have some skin in the game. Like I want my life to be on the line because I think that that will force me to think about things in a different way than if I'm sitting in a aisle seat on a nice comfortable jet you know um so that's kind of where i was and i thought that this adventure would be such a radical departure such a dramatic departure from anything that i had experienced that it would offer the headspace and specifically the the alone time on the bicycle to offer the headspace to allow me to kind of digest my life to that point and think about what i wanted to do differently moving forward so it's like the sobriety, getting sober was was one step, but in, in many ways, like science kind of lost its appeal after I, after I got sober, but it took a couple of years of, of fumbling around in my postdoctoral research before I was ready to like jump ship and fold. Because once, once you leave the track that I was in, you can't go back. It, people are so yeah. hungry, so competitive. I could have gone back yeah. at a lower level, but I'll be 100% honest and say that like after being at those institutions and having the resources that I had, I didn't want to go somewhere they didn't have those resources, like either a really, really good private institution or a big state school or the places that, that have those resources. And that's where I wanted to be, at least in my, in my mind, my, my preconceived notion of what success was had me landing at one of those types of places. Well, there's a sunk cost. Right, exactly. I mean, you've put so much time into it. It feels, it feels like you've wasted that time if you just drop it and move on. But at a certain point, you know, it sounds like you are at a place where like, what else, what other choices do I have? Yeah. And the thing is, is that it's, it's the irony is I had tons of choices. Like I could have moved mm-hmm. into biotech for twice the money. I easily could have gone and taught high school. I could have gone and worked in finance. I could have gone and done consulting. I could have done any of these things, but like none of those things like wound me up and yeah. I needed, I needed to go and do something totally different in order to like to, to hit the reset button and a two week vacation wasn't going to do it. And like my parents were horrified. When I, when I told them about <laughs> yeah, this adventure, about like yeah. they, it caused a lot of friction with my parents. Um, and they just, did, they didn't understand. And I don't think the people around me understood either. They've all kind of known me as like this kind of wild and nutty guy who'll do, who'll do anything, but it's different to, to, to fold some, to fold a career. And it, it, big year folks kind of fall into two general camps. It's, it's younger folks who haven't really established themselves professionally and have some time to, to explore 
And then older folks who have kind of winding professional time down. I mm-hmm. fell into a, I don't want to say a complete, I fell into a rather different block because I was like right in my, like what would have been my prime earning years, like right when I was looking to become a professor. So I folded what was still a relatively like bright future after investing a ton of time, you know? And mm-hmm. so it was a huge decision. Like it was, it was the biggest decision. Yeah. I'd, it might've even been bigger in terms of more difficult than getting sober because getting sober, like the alternative was, was, was disaster, right? Right. Like right. not getting there's sober no, would have been disastrous. And yeah, was no landing pad right, exactly. in like, uh, biochem consulting. If you go down that, continue down that path. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So in some respects, like leaving my career was one of the, was the hardest decision I've had to make in my life. Yeah. You talk about needing something to kind of wind you up and get you excited. Do you think that sort of mentality is part of the reason why you were so susceptible to addiction in the first place? Yeah. I mean, I think that people who know me, I can't do anything at anything other than (laughs) volume 11. Like I'm just, I'm one of these people who is super obsessive about everything. Like my nightmare is being forced to sit on a beach for a week. Like that's my <laughs> worst nightmare. Maybe mine is yeah. Disneyland, but like sitting on a beach inactive for a week, I can't do it. Like I have to be doing something all the time. Yeah. And, and it's funny because I, I, when I joke with people that like when I was, when I was drinking, I would beat the hell out of myself at night and then recover during the day. And the bicycle was the exact opposite. I would beat the hell out yeah. of myself during yeah. the day and then recover at night. But I just, and this is what readers will get is that you'll get inside the mind of an addict and, you, and you'll see mm-hmm. that like, I get as addicted to the bicycle as I was to like alcohol and drugs yeah. before I left because that's just how I operate. And, and, and my wife, it's, it's so interesting, like trying to explain this to people. Like my wife has done her best to understand it. And unless you're an addict, like you just don't. And even this morning, like I, I flipped on, I was going to, I was watching a taped version of the Spain, Sweden game. I won't oh, reveal right. the okay. outcome, but I flipped yeah. on that show mom, uh, starring out, uh, Allison Janney and, and Anna <laughs> Ferris. And it's like, they're in the, the AA meeting and I'm like, God, this just, this hits so close to home. There's just like, the characters are, are all alcoholics and, and they have these like ticks and problems. I'm like, I have those same ticks and problems. And it just, yeah. it's difficult to explain to people who aren't addicts, like how obsessive that we get over things. It, so, it is really interesting because in the book, you talk about addiction and your experiences in a very like frank, and straightforward way. It's it's kind of eye-opening because it's so, in, in a way, so pragmatic and formal. Um, mm-hmm. it, it strikes me as something very similar to the way people identify birds. Like, you see what you see, you don't see what you don't see, and you go from there. And is that how you look at your addiction? Are the similarities, are there similarities in the way that you approach these two aspects of yourself? It's interesting because in the moment, no, because that's what drinking does, is it takes that kind of rational and the perfect word to use was pragmatic approach to things and, and twists it and distorts it and then, and, and exploits the, the, the confusion that it creates as a result. Like mm-hmm. looking back on things, it's so easy to kind of deconstruct my addiction and say, this is where I went right. right. And this is where I went wrong. And kind of as a, as basically a genetic engineer by training, that's, that's how I think is to deconstruct things and then and break it down into, into solvable problems. At, at one point I write about how I looked at addiction as like, a problem that I could solve, right? Yeah. It's, it's very much like, if I, I rewatched A Beautiful Mind the other day and he's trying to come to grips, Russell Crowe's character is, is trying to come to grips with uh, John Nash, the economist, with like, with with working and not taking his meds, but the problem is in his mind. And so 
in that moment, he like, he can't get himself around it. And that was the same problem as I was, I was experiencing with my addiction. Now, looking back, being that I got beyond the addiction, it, it seems like, how did I not get over this sooner? But that's, that's how this works, you know? And, yeah. and I tend to, I tend to deconstruct and kind of like problem solve my way through things. But when you're in it, it's so difficult to do that, you know? Yeah. We'll back up a little bit and talk a little bit more about the, the logistics of a big year, a biking big yeah, year. Yeah. Um, because I mean, big years, conventional big years, the logistics are super impressive. And because this was the first time that anyone had sort of attempted a continental scale big year by bicycle, you were kind of on your own in a lot of this. How did you yeah. plan this stuff out? What was sort of your strategy going forward? And how well did you stick to that strategy over the course of the year? Yeah, so I I knew at the outset I couldn't I couldn't pick up the pen, so to speak. Like I had to have a single trace that would take me around the whole continent, which ended up being a good chunk of the lower 48 states. Uh, because I couldn't just magically move from LA to New York. I mean, as I, as I said, like that you can be in LA and New York on the same day if you fly. It's a formality, but a bike is an uninterrupted month of, of 100 mile days, assuming that you can sustain that yeah. to get from New York to LA. So I basically said, I got to minimize the riding. And so I looked for areas where there were lots of concentrations of birds at specific times of year. And I did have a birding background and I had somewhat yeah. reconnected with birding after getting sober. So I had kind of kind of got plugged back into the game. Uh, so I just, I came up with like six or seven key areas that needed to be visited. And then I said, well, what are the time constraints on these areas? Mm -hmm. And so you had like Florida, Texas in spring, Arizona, the Rockies, West coast. And I also needed to include the Northeast, which was like a headache in and unto itself. But then I, I sat down and I, I kind of drew the line through Google Maps and I said, which, how can I connect these seasonally constrained areas with the least riding? And it turned out that like starting in the Northeast and then kind of working South and then West was the way to do it. And I mean, what I told people is I had to have like my entire strategy in place before I left because I couldn't yeah. go back. Like in Florida, right. I, I missed mangrove cuckoo because I was there in February and March when they're not very vocal and they're not very territorial. And I looked and looked and looked. Had I been doing a normal big year, I could have just allocated a day and flown back and played some tape in, in April when they're super vocal and probably yeah. got the bird without a lot of effort. But I didn't have that luxury. And so... I planned out this route and I figured I'd have to ride about 15,000 miles in order to have a shot at 600 species, which I thought was as, as good a goal as any, right? Like, yeah, right. I originally, you have a goal. Yeah. Right. Like 585 <laughs> isn't terribly exciting. But, <laughs> right. And that's what I realistically thought I could get. But having 600 was a nice round number to shoot for. So I figured I'd have to ride about 40 miles a day. And that held for about the first half of the year. But it was clear by the midpoint that I that I underestimated what I was capable of doing. And so mm -hmm. through the second half of the year, I started detouring a lot more, kind of bulging my route out to, to capture species and search for species that I hadn't imagined possible when I departed. Uh, so I was able to go way up to the Canadian border and I was able to do some extra stuff in Colorado. And I was also able to backtrack and chase some rarities, right? piling on hundreds of extra miles, like unanticipated miles. Uh, but it was it was a lot of fun. Like it was it was an engineering problem today. It was an optimization problem. It was what is you want to you want to you want the miles per bird right. to be as low as possible, and like that's a sweet problem to be to solve, right? Uh, so <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of fun yeah. putting the route together. And I originally thought I I'd have to I kind of I, what I call my prototypical or idealized route of about fifteen thousand miles. I I figured that like sickness, injury, fatigue, inexperience, because I'd done no cycling before this before I took off on this trip. I thought that was really fascinating. Like you just jumped on a bike and, and yeah. did it. 
and kind of worked yourself into shape as right. you as you. And I think that on. that was important. That I, it's not like a marathon where you train and it's like I just got to get through this one day. Like I necessarily had to yeah. use the early stages of the adventure as training and. Mother Nature kind of took care of some of the governing for me by throwing snowstorms and ice and wind and things at me in the first couple of months. Because as an addict, I don't have the discipline to schedule that downtime. But the fact that I started mm-hmm. in what is still the coldest record, uh, the coldest recorded winter on record yeah. in the Northeast is it, it imposed that that kind of rest structure on me when I wouldn't have been able to do it for myself. But it was a lot of fun. It was a ton of fun. And I didn't have to compromise my route. And in fact, as I said, I I was able to expand it as I went along. It is kind of interesting how your journey sort of dovetails with your uh, route to sobriety as well. Uh, All the suffering was up front. (laughs) And then it got easier as you went on. (laughs) Right. Yeah, yeah. Like I knew that the Northeast was going to be miserable. And it was either confronted at the beginning or confronted at the end. And the math told me to do it at the at the outset, which streamlined the logistics because fortuitously I have to I happened to be living in Boston at that time while I was working in Mass General, so it, it it worked out really well. I mean, it's it's funny because there are definitely things that I would do differently. There were birds that I invested time, like I spent a day in Boston to get lesser blackback gull, and when I got to Volusia Shores in Florida, there's like the fifty place. of them yeah. there, and I spent time looking for Graveirio or yeah Graveirio when I heard them along the side of the road. At, at, points thereafter. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's definitely things that I would do differently. But in terms of the superstructure of the route, like the other thing that will be really interesting to see is if in fact there is one best route. And if in fact I wrote it, like anybody who wants to come after me is necessarily has like a day by day blueprint, Mm -hmm. how to proceed because of my blog. So it'll be really interesting to see if anybody else tries this. Like I think the the lowest hanging fruit would actually be a, a close. So I started and ended in different places, which I think is totally fair because what are you going to do? Tell somebody who lives in Quebec that they have to start and end in Quebec. Like that's totally <laughs> yeah, bogus. That's and bogus. bird diversity, yeah. And bird diversity increases as you go south and west across the country. San Diego County having the highest county list of any county in the country, if not San Diego, certainly LA. Uh, so I think that like the interesting permutation that someone will eventually do is like starting and ending in the same place. Mm-hmm. And, like what is the idea? What is the ideal place to start and end? Uh, so I think that would be really interesting to see. Yeah, the only place I could think of on your on your route that really felt like you could rack up some species if you were somehow able to hit the southern shore of the Great Lakes in like May, in early May. But like I don't know how you get there. You can't get that's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. You have to do Texas like you did because the route requires Texas. Right. And the birds that I miss, like, yeah, I could have gotten Kirtland's warbler up there. Mm-hmm. I could have gotten like Eurasian tree sparrow. I mean, I could have gotten lesser prairie chicken at some point as well. Uh, but you can't ride like a thousand miles for one bird in a car. It's easy. Like you can drive a thousand miles in yeah. a day and get the bird and be done in 24 hours. But to ride a thousand miles for a bird or even two birds is, is you're talking about two weeks worth of time. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's the strategy, right? Is that like, I knew there was a, a, a finite number, an exhaustible pool of birds. And so the, the flip side of it is that you didn't want to finish too quickly. Yeah, exactly. Because if you get the, if you finish, if you get to like central Texas, where I, I plan to end on December 20th, like you may, you, you, the only like predictable bird, like assuming you get lesser prairie chicken and, and Smith's Longsburg, the next predictable bird that you could get is in St. Louis. Yeah. And do you really have like 10 days at the end of the year to ride to get Eurasian tree sparrow? Like you're much better <laughs> off deploying, like deploying that time. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> crabby bird to end exactly. on. And, and so it's like, you want to deploy that time strategically along the way. Yeah. Because you can't, it's not like a normal big year where 
if you have 10 days, you just wait by the phone for rarities and the phone to ring and, and jet off. Like you're kind of stuck at the end of the year if you finish too quickly. So there was so much strategy involved and, and feeling it out day by day. You can't plan a week in advance because you don't know what the wind is going to do. You don't know how mm-hmm. you're going to feel. So you can only really look two or three days down the line in terms of like, this is, this is where I'm trying to be in two or three days. Yeah. Anything beyond that, it's like, it's, Wait, yeah. it's too, too much. In some ways, that makes the whole narrative of the year much more compelling than like a traditional big year where, you know, the latter six months, the second half of the year right. is just sitting around waiting for rare birds to show up in various places, maybe right. a trip to uh, Western Alaska, but that's pretty much it. And you had this constant journey, constantly making progress every single day, little by little. It's a very arresting narrative that makes the, the book a really uh, fun read. Yeah. And it was interesting because my, my view changed every day and seeing mm-hmm. the country at 15 miles an hour allows me to write about a crumbling national infrastructure. It allows mm-hmm. me to write about the decay of the decay of towns in the South as yeah. big business has to suck money out of them. It allows me to like ride through urban areas and see the development that's happened mm-hmm. there. Um, so moving, moving slower. I mean, I, I will say that I personally hit a wall kind of in November, because yeah, that's when I, re- I reconnected with my route in Southern Arizona. So I ended up doing this monster loop around the American West, starting and ending in, in Tucson. And the novel, by the time I got back and had to ride I-10 back across Western. Yeah, that was Central the roughest Texas, like, part of the whole That was the roughest year, part. Like, yeah. My body was falling apart. The weather was terrible. It was like 25 degrees when I was going through Western Texas. Like I had three or four days that were like in the 30s and 40s, really windy. And I was just, I was looking at the same stretches of highway with no new birds to be found for like hundreds and hundreds of miles so that is really when i when i was mentally done (laughs) (laughs) yeah well and and i guess the point i remember following along with you on your blog the -hmm. the entire year and i remember that being really fun every day every other day or so that you would you know post a little update and uh did that help give you that sort of momentum yeah. to keep pushing through, knowing that hundreds, maybe thousands of people were following along every single day with your progress. Yeah, I think that, and I write about this as well, that like there needs to be some amount, accountability is, is a good thing. Like yeah. as readers will will see, my, my early attempts at sobriety failed because mm-hmm. I, I kept them a secret and I did not involve friends and family and I went at it alone. And had I had a support network that I necessarily needed to enlist, I would have had this accountability beyond myself. So that, like when I decided to go back out, as we say in the, in the alcoholic world, mm-hmm. I might've thought differently about it. And the same thing on the bike that I had, I had built up same kind of thing. I, I had pushed so much time and effort into the blog and, and keeping the adventure going that it became harder. There was there, the, right. the cost of yeah. folding it as I got deeper into the year would have been higher and higher. And it was really nice knowing that I had all these people who were, as invested mm-hmm. in my adventure as, as I was like, I had people who I tried to write, I blogged on all but 10 nights. And those were only those were nights when I didn't have internet. My wife usually took over that night blogged about what it was like to have me away. But like, I knew that there were so many people who woke up every morning. And like, the first thing they did was read my blog with their morning cup of coffee, like that really gave me the accountability and the motivation and the drive to keep the adventure going. So I realized that whether any big year, whether we, no matter how you do it, people are living vicariously through you. And mm-hmm. in a normal big, like in a normal big year, I'm sure that there's times when people are tired, but you don't like ache with every cell in your body <laughs> yes. about quitting. And yeah. like I did that on several different occasions. Yeah. So that accountability really helped push me forward. Yeah. I used to be a pretty serious bike rider myself. 
Um, so I know what it's like to put in a hundred mile day and how tired you are mm-hmm. at the end of it. Multiple a hundred mile days kind of strung together is something I've never experienced. And I imagine that must've mm-hmm. been sort of an, an ache that you have had not felt before and have probably have not felt since. Um, yeah. th- there's something about being on a bike though, that is so it's very Zen, just like doing repetitive, yes. doing the same thing over and over and over again, your eye on the horizon, just keeping pushing towards who knows what. Um, it gives you a lot of time to think. And I know that you consciously went without any sort of music, any sort of uh, extra sort of sensory yeah, uh, issue yeah. because you were wanted that time to think. Um, what, what was that like? Those long hours of days without yeah. just only yourself for company. Yeah, it was hard. Yeah. Uh, I think that what I tell people is that assuming the weather is decent, i.e. it's not blowing up 20 miles an hour in your face. It's not five degrees and snowing. It's not pouring rain. It's not 110 degrees. Like if you're riding in, in comfortable conditions, I the first three to four hours of any given ride would be would be enjoyable. Mm-hmm. And then as you got beyond about four hours, it became more and more of a slog. Yeah. Uh, and so a lot of the best thinking would happen kind of in my in hours two to four because there's this like novelty each day of like yeah. getting moving, getting your your blood flowing, kind of getting back in the saddle, and then you get into a good rhythm as you said, and it's, it's just this repetitive pedaling. And kind of in, in hours three and four, you're you're still not like hating life, <laughs> <laughs> and so you're still you're thinking about stuff. But like yeah. as you get beyond hour four, and or the wind picks up, or the weather changes, then then there's this like counting of mileposts. Yeah. And I remember coming back across Western Texas. There was one day I'd ridden a hundred miles the previous day, and and I was riding in about 120 on this day, and I just the wind was about 20 miles an hour, and. I remember like riding all, I was living like no further than the next mile post. And as I rode past each mile, I divided the last 40 miles of the ride into blocks of 10 mm-hmm. mentally. And I remember each time I, I passed a mile post, I shouted out loud over interstate traffic, like eight. <laughs> and it would then be like, because of the wind, it would then be like 10 minutes till the next mile, yeah. to, like eight to 10 minutes. And then I'd get to like, nine. And it was, like that's where there is this like level of madness that takes over when the conditions are bad and the rides are long. But early in the day, like having a clear head and not having programming, like not having music, not having news. I, I wanted to be in my head for the entire year and it really worked. There were times when it was absolutely maddening, but I, I'm really thankful. And also there was the pragmatic concern of, of not getting run over. <laughs> and also so many of the birds that I found, I found by ear. Yeah. Just singing next to the road so but the the main thing despite those pragmatic concerns was really to to challenge myself to be alone and that's why i really valued these interactions i had with people at donut shops and Mm -hmm. restaurants and in reserves and national parks and things because these folks broke up what was otherwise like long long stretches of of solitary time did you compose your blog posts in your head as you were writing no i was never that far along i mean it was, there were things, it was interesting though, because there were things I wanted to write about. Like I never went into this being like, I'm going to do a big year and write a book about this. Like that didn't, it didn't, I knew that I'd have a, a cool story at the end of it, but I deliberately kept my alcoholism like out of the blog and, and kind of out of the kind of the spotlight, so to speak, because in the moment it wasn't about that. Um, and so I, I, I kind of wanted to leave some of this personal stuff for later if i decided to if i decided to write a book and i think that that's the book and the blog are totally different the yeah blog is like, this for is sure what happened yeah. today, and this is what's going to happen tomorrow and these are a few observations i made along the way but the book is like many it's, it's many more levels and layers uh 
And I'm glad that I didn't pay all of that out, so to speak, too soon. And without and without that, yeah, I agree. And without it needs a little, it needs a little hindsight too. Yeah, it, exactly. That is the biggest thing. Like, I think that the act of writing the book was the most cathartic part of all this. Like the the book is written as as is any decent story. They like all happened in the moment. But the reality is that like the writing process is where like I took all of these disparate pieces of my life that I, I was starting to understand and then synthesize them into a narrative. And I've told other people this, like when, when I was getting drunk and partying, like all I wanted to do is like get as hammered as possible and do outrageous stuff, mostly because I'm ins- insecure and wanted attention. And so <laughs> I loved like the following day getting together and people were like, dude, you were totally out of control last night. Like that night's gonna live in infamy. And like every night I was trying to do something more and more outrageous. <laughs> <laughs> but like those nights never synthesized into anything. They were just like isolated nights. And the irony in the whole thing is, is it's only in getting sober and taking this adventure and then kind of taking these disparate pieces of my life and, and understanding them and putting them together into this narrative that I actually had a story worth telling. And as you yeah. said, like it needed yeah, the hindsight and the fact that I didn't crank the book out six months after afterwards gave me the time to digest all of this stuff because as yep. I think readers, you saw and readers will see that there's there's a lot of stuff that needs to be sorted through in in, mm-hmm. in my head and on the page. Well, I definitely think that the book is better for all mm-hmm. that hindsight. It's it's really it's really compelling. Um, you spend a lot of time crashing at people's houses. Yeah, yeah. And cyclists, uh, especially cycling birders. Uh, the two communities feel very similar to me in that sort of once you're in, you're like, you're in. Yeah. Uh, your interest essentially vouches for you as a person. Right. Did you find that to be the case everywhere you went? Yeah, I think that, and, and I'll say that it also actually dovetails. I did this, recently did this mobile year and a half with my wife of pet sitting. And oh, okay. I think that I think that anybody listening to this podcast understands that the birding community is progressive, open-minded, tolerant, and accepting. Like that's just how the, the birding community part, is. Yep. And that's like one of the best parts yep. of it. But the mm-hmm. cycling community I found was very similar because if you're going to open up your doors to some stranger and say, come into my house and like not be worried about like getting robbed and not worry about like getting attacked, like you're fundamentally putting this trust in humanity. And it was the same thing with mm-hmm. the pet sitting thing. Like these people would, we'd stay at their house and take care of effectively their kids. Well, they were on vacation yeah. for three weeks. And the mindset of the people who, who are willing to, you're not rolling up to the house that has the don't tread on me flag on the pole and then the like the metal <laughs> shutters pulled down and the like yeah. 20 security cameras you're under surveillance like those aren't the yeah. people who are like allowing you into their homes they know those are the people mm-hmm. who don't want you near their property right right there it's it's insanity but it's like the the cycling and birding communities are the opposite end of that spectrum where it's really opening it's really open and really welcoming and it was awesome like it was a lot of what i write about are the people that i met and how those people forced me to reevaluate or recalibrate my notions of happiness and success. And like, that's really what this trip was about for me. Like I had this preconceived notion of what success was, and it was being a professor at one of these fancy schools and having the job title of, of professor and publishing papers that nobody but a few people on the planet earth understood and so on and so forth. Whereas (laughs) I meet all these people along the way who do all these, what I would consider non-traditional paths, some professional, some less professional, but still like they find a way to, to be happy. And then through my interactions with them, I get to, I get to understand like, man, life is, life is as complicated as you make it. And I was making life way more complicated than it needed to mm-hmm. be because of ego expectation and insecurity. And these other people had just stripped out for lack of a better word, all that bullshit. And 
and had found ways to be happy. And they were really inspiring to me as a result of that. Yeah. I, I sometimes wonder while reading the book, whether you were sort of the only person alive who could take this sort of thing on <laughs> in terms of, uh, you know, abuse of drugs and alcohol and addictive or obsessive personality is obviously a problem. But in terms of putting your mind towards this purpose, this big year, it is a benefit. And I don't know that yeah. the average birder would take it on, let alone complete it. Do you find it interesting that the same traits that allowed you to pursue your previous career in research while abusing substances on the side probably contributed to this massive, impressive undertaking too? Yeah, I completely agree. I think that, and my wife has said it, she's like, it took an addict to do what you did yeah, last year. In some way, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it takes somebody who is like singularly committed to like one one project. I don't want to say a vision because there was like, I didn't know what it was going to be, but just like mm -hmm. the act of pedaling the bicycle. Like fundamentally, my job for the entire year was to pedal a bicycle and, and find some birds along the way. And the finding of the birds is a lot of fun. The pedaling the bicycle ranged from idyllic to like beyond miserable, yeah. depending, depending upon the conditions. But I think that there is something there. There were, there were traits that, and this is, this is kind of what, one of the messages that I try to leave people with. Like I, I didn't necessarily get the choice to be an addict. Mm -hmm. Like some of that is hardwired ins and genetics and, and the way that I operate, like the same reason I was successful in science mm -hmm. is the same reason that I was an addict because I just like latch onto things and, I, and I'm, I'm like a pit bull when I decide to do something. Uh, and so I don't, I don't necessarily get the choice to be an addict, but I do get the choice of to what I'm addicted. And I think that that that's an important thing. You see this in the recovery community. I think the most, the like, people who are, who are addicts, like need, need to replace. Like if you yeah. try to deny the fact that you're an addict, then, then you fail and you end up relapsing. Like you have to find something else that to which you're equally addicted and, and run with it. Yeah. And like your addiction, it's like a dog chewing on a bone needs to chew. And for a lot of addicts, it's, it's, it's fitness because that's something that they can control. And it's like the act of like, for lack of a better word, beating yourself up, it feels good. Yeah. And, but in a healthy way, same thing on the bike, like I beat myself up, but I was building my body up as opposed to tearing it down yeah. through, through the challenge that I was placing upon it. For you, it's bird watching, photography, nature study. That's what you've, yeah, I, that's where you've put your energies. Right. It just, it's, that's what I, that's where I, I chew, so to speak, yeah. is, is on those things. And that keeps me, that keeps me whole because without those things, like if I try to deny this like fundamental part of myself, then, then I'm going to have a problem. And, and this is, this is what the time, this is like the hindsight that you need mm -hmm. because when you first get sober, you're like, my life is over. Like everything that I did that was fun and cool and my ability to escape problems is is over and it's going to be miserable. And there's not a, nobody goes into their first day in A and be like, dude, this is going to be a blast. This is going to be dope, <laughs> yeah. right? Like that, nobody does yeah, that. No, not even on TV, no. <laughs> right. And so like, it just takes a lot of time to, to get that, that distance before it starts to make sense. You know, you can't, you can't force it. You just have to trust that it will be okay eventually. So when you finished your big year, how long did it take before you were on the bike again, looking for birds? Cause I know you still travel around looking for birds on the bike. My wife and I ended up moving to LA, uh, right after I got off the bike, mm -hmm. her, her mom was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And so we said, we need to be there for her. Let's go to LA. I was not thrilled about going to LA, but it was something that we needed to do as 
as a family mm-hmm. unit. Um, I didn't take my bike with me to LA because I was over the bike at that stage. I wasn't sure I was ever going to ride it again. <laughs> you needed some time. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I needed like Bikers Anonymous at that stage. That's right. And yeah. the other things yeah. in LA is just the area where we were is East LA. It's just concrete it's for 30 miles in every yes. direction, if not longer. So I didn't do any bike birding in LA. And the other thing is that I kind of, I hadn't been able to do a ton of photography while I was on the bikes. I didn't have my big lens and all my good gear. So I kind of reconnected with photography. But once we moved to the Bay Area in 2017, the Bay Area is much more bike friendly. Uh, and so mm-hmm. I, I've really reconnected with the bike since then. Uh, and so I've, I ride about, I don't know, 2,500 miles, 2,500, anywhere between 2,000 and 3,000 miles a year chasing birds around the Bay Area. I play the same county listing games now as everybody else does. I just do it on a bike. So yeah, just like my Bay Area bike list, birds seen on out and back rides to my house is now up to 347 species, which is probably probably higher than some people's state lists in other states. Like I have things like- Yeah, no doubt. I think it's very close to You know, it's like (laughs) I've got crazy things like dusky warbler, red-footed booby- Laysan albatross, yeah, right. California condor. Like that was five days, a five day loop to get condor. But I've got all kinds of all kinds of cool, cool rarities on my bike list now. And that's like that's my little project. And mm-hmm. now I, I try to I try to get out. Right, I have a separate eBird account for my bike, so I eBird nice. my regular account and then share it to my bike account whenever I'm on my bike. So I keep all my county lists and things. So it's funny sometimes I'll be out. Like there was an episode where I was out with my wife. Uh, we were like, I don't know, 20 miles from the house and there was both bear, bears and pectoral sandpiper, which I hadn't seen on my bike in Alameda County. So when we got uh-huh. home that afternoon, I got on the bike and rode the like 20 miles back to the same spot <laughs> to get them my Alameda County bike list, even though I don't live in Alameda County. Yeah. So yeah, it gets obsessive that way. I've done that a couple of times where I've double chased where I've seen a bird in the car when I've been out <laughs> doing something else and then come home and then ridden back to get it on my bike. But that's what an addict does, right? Like if that doesn't yeah. show that I'm an addict, I, I don't know what does. So it is a positive outlet. Right, right. It's a positive outlet for that for that impulse. And the other thing yeah. about the bike is that it's it's exercise. And so the, one of the best things about being on the bike during yeah. the year was I could eat anything I wanted. It didn't anything. matter. Like if yep. I woke up in the morning, yep. I was like, I want to find a Ben and Jerry's for breakfast. That's what I had. And if I wanted yeah. a large Domino's pizza for lunch, like that's what I had. It just, I didn't have to worry about it. And same thing here, while I'm not riding nearly as much as I did during the year, it's my exercise. Like I don't, I don't have a gym membership. I don't, I don't do exercise classes. I just ride on my, ride my bike around. Same bike or did you upgrade? Yeah, I have the same bike. I mean, the thing is, this thing is indestructible. I mean, yeah, it's, I've been hit. I've fallen a bunch of times. I've slipped on ice. I mean, I mean, so I rode 18,000 miles during that year and I, at least through like 18, 19, 20. I mean, the bike has well over 30,000 miles on it now. Wow. Uh, so yeah. yeah, it's it's pretty cool. I mean, I don't really do a lot of riding for non-birding purposes. I live so mm-hmm. close to the grocery store that I can just walk over there. Yeah. I live in a pretty foot-friendly community where I can walk to the donut shop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. California donuts are the best. So it's, exactly. it's, it's convenient. No, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been a lot of fun. And I, I definitely think that It'll be interesting, like now that this project is done, like granted, there's a lot of promotional stuff that has to happen, like things like this and speaking, I'll be in the, at the Cape May Festival in a couple of oh, cool. couple yeah. of months and kind of getting to do more on the speaking circuit. Uh, but I'll have to navigate this with tropical birding. At some point, I'll have to make a decision, like, do I want to be a bird guide who guides three or four months of the year or, or as much as my wife will tolerate? Mm-hmm. Or do I want to like trim the guiding back and have it be a part of kind of my what all for lack of a better word my my brand where yeah i'm also like taking bike adventures so my wife has actually has signed off on me riding my bike from mexico to panama already whether i can okay find the time to execute that i'm not sure like the pipe dream a project i'd love to do would be to ride from colombia to tierra del fuego um yeah but i think that 
like I'm looking at the bike now as, as not necessarily a means to see a lot of species, but could I take the bicycle and use it to build international community? Like I think that our, our former president had kind of trashed on Latin America uh, during his time in office. And I've spent time in Honduras. I spent time in, mm-hmm. in Belize and Guatemala and Mexico and a lot of places in Central and South America. And I know kind of what it's like on the ground there. And I wouldn't think twice about riding a bike through these countries. Like they're just mm-hmm. as welcoming and, and, and safe as most of the U.S. Like the inner cities everywhere can be tough, but I mean, downtown Detroit is, is just as rough as downtown Tegucigalpa. So uh, I'd love to, I'd love to find a, the time and to use the bike to, to take the international adventures. I'd, I'd love to ride across Canada just because I think Canada is such an awesome place um, and beautiful and unspoiled. So I'd like to get to a point where maybe I could do one of these every other year and then write something about mm-hmm. it. But I have to see how that fits in with my wife, my relationship, and also with tropical <laughs> right. birding. They may be like, no, 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 we need you. We need you all the time. So I have to see how that works out. It's interesting how the bike is sort of breaks down barriers between people too. Because a man traveling by himself is, can be perceived as threatening. But a crazy guy riding a bike through the country is seen as endearing. And it's uh, interesting that you can accomplish more on a bike than you ever could right. through conventional travel. Yeah. I completely agree. I think that the bicycle, because of the vulnerability yeah. that, yeah. that it presents, you have to be like, trusting. Pe- yeah. people, people are willing to cut you a lot of slack. Um, I also think that the bicycle, when you look around the world, is, is a very egalitarian mechanism of transportation. And showing up in a Hummer versus showing up <laughs> on a bike, yeah. you're going to be received completely differently by average people, yeah. uh, of people of average means. Uh, in those two modes of transportation. And so I think that the bicycle really does level the playing field in that respect. And I think that, as you said, endearing is, is a good word. It's almost like, oh, this person, bless his heart. Like he's riding <laughs> I can't a bike he's around. Doing you know? crazy great right, exactly. Like, oh man. <laughs> so, so that's, that's the thing is I think that people are, are receptive and, and compassionate. They, they understand. They're yeah. Like, oh, wow. This, this is rough. <laughs> <laughs> And it's that it's that that makes the whole experience worthwhile. It's that it's that personal connection yeah. that that you experience. And the number of people who who took me in and put me up and like I was amazed. Uh, the number of times that I I was at fast food restaurants like that's all a I can afford to eat and b with the bike with all my stuff strapped to it like locking the bike is useless because people yeah. just take their panniers and like run right. off. So I had to eat at places where I could like lean the bike against the window and then keep an eye on it. But I'm sitting there like at standing there in line at Wendy's or Burger King or Chipotle holding a bike helmet in biking gear. Yeah. And there's a bike like right outside and people, they'd come up and they'd be like, they already know the answer to the question. They're like, is that your bike? And they know the answer is yes. Right. Like that's just, that's the icebreaker. Yeah. It's like, do you yeah, have a cigarette? Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, they have a cigarette. Yeah. That's why you're asking for one. Yeah. Um, and so they just, they just wanted to hear what was going on. And mm-hmm. the number of people who were like, I'm just going to buy you lunch and and you just talk and I'm going to sit here. Like that happened like 15 or 20 times, mm-hmm. like over the course of the year. And people just wanted to hear what it was like to, to be on a bike for you. They wanted to live vicariously because yeah. most people are never going to get that opportunity. Like I was so fortunate that, that Sonia was, and she's a big part of the story. Yeah, but she like is. My we wife we've is, barely even touched on her, but yeah, like she's my a huge wife part of the story. is such a huge part of the yeah. story. Like, I don't think that, like, she is like so important to all of it and, and is such a central figure. Like, none of this happens without her. Mm-hmm. And I won't go into too much, but it was amazing to have a partner who's like, yes, go and do this. And she recognized that I might not come back. Like, you might ruin your finances uh, during a regular big year, but I stood the chances of not coming back. Mm-hmm. And, 
for a significant other to let me go, knowing that I needed this and this would make me make me a better person and ultimately make our relationship better, was like a, a very enlightened and an unselfish view on on her part. And so she's a she's a massive character in the book. Absolutely. Was there so. a single day during your big year that you look back on as this was absolutely the pinnacle of what this year could be, either because of the birds you saw or because of the scenery that you were riding through or just anything, a revelation that you made on the, on the road, um, any day that stands out to you? I mean, I think that, I think that there were a couple of days, like the Oregon coast was just stunning. Mm -hmm. It was just stunning and it's so undeveloped. Um, like I had some wonderful days in the Oregon coast. I do think that riding through the Rockies as painful as it was, mm -hmm. was like so spectacular. I think that like riding through Monument Valley, like these places that like you see that scene in Forrest Gump where he's, I don't know, he's run across the country like 62 times or whatever it is. He's got the hella long beard. Yeah, yeah. And like he's running through Monument Valley and that very famous road yeah. where it like dips down and it comes up. Like I rode that on my bike and I, I took that photo. Like that was just so spectacular. Like I felt so small and insignificant riding through Monument Valley. Mm -hmm. To think about the geology behind that, to think about the time that it took to form the Rockies as I'm riding through those. Like, I think that finding, there were moments like finding white-tailed ptarmigan after this protracted battle, <laughs> finding sage grouse after this protracted battle. And like both of those were in these like unbelievably stunning mountainous settings. Yeah. Um, finding Pacific golden plover after after having missed it like a dozen times. Yeah, you had to backtrack uh, for that one, right? Yeah. Right. I had to keep going back. I went back and got it. I think that those were those are some of the highlights. I mean, I it's I think that like my my ride, like descending from Red Mountain Pass into Uray, where I, I got the bike going faster than I got it going the whole year. I probably was, I don't know, forty five miles an hour mm -hmm. going straight downhill, like super steep. Like that was that was unbelievable. Like that that ride was just something on a bicycle that is absolutely breathtaking. It was amazing. Yeah. So those are some of the highlights. Cool. Riding through the snow was its own highlight, right? but <laughs> yeah. in the moment was like, like I think even my fourth day, right? Like one of the things I tell people is I guess January one, my temperature topped out at 27 degrees yeah. and then I got this huge snowstorm on two and three, so I couldn't ride. And then when I went back out on the fourth, there were 20 inches of snow on the ground. It was 10 degrees below zero. And there were like no cars on the road. And I'm riding through this winter wonder. Mm -hmm. It was it was like something out of a Hans Christian Andersen <laughs> children's book. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm experiencing this on a bike. I'm like, I can say with confidence that nobody else has experienced what I'm experiencing now as I'm looking around trying to find birds. Like, yeah. It was so different from what any birder has experienced. Some people have done bike figures since then. Uh, in Minnesota and things. So the other people have since replicated it, mm -hmm. but that was just, it was miserable and like breathtaking in the same. It's probably way. a metaphor for um, addiction recovery sobriety there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dorian yeah. Anderson's book, Birding Under the Influence, Cycling Across America in Search of Birds and Recovery is out in early November. Please check it out. It is a great narrative. I loved it. Uh, Dorian, congratulations on the book. Congratulations on sobriety. Congratulations on all, all the things. It was great to talk to you. And thanks. And it's like, this is, these are the kind of opportunities. Like when I walked into AA on the first day, like I never envisioned the bike trip. And when I got on the yeah. bike, I, I never envisioned this. And so I think that like we all have these ideas that we 
they kind of stay in our head. But at some point, like you have to take a risk and you have to put yourself out there and and just go for it. Like don't jump headlong into something without a little bit of thought. Like give it some thought, digest it, and get it to a point where it's like, I think this has a chance. But but go for it. And if people tell you if people tell you your idea is crazy, then it's worth pursuing. If, yeah. if people tell you like if everybody tells you that's a good idea, what that is is a safe idea. And and that doesn't move the needle on 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 thinking very, very far. Like safe mm-hmm. ideas are boring. And so you need the idea to be different enough. Like you're trying to do a bu- bike figure on a bike to like move the needle to show people it's possible. So I'll be interested to see like if other people cook up, cook up other like big year permutations and, and other burden permutations and just see what's out there. Like yeah. go for it and do it and you won't regret it. You know, it might not go the way you anticipate, but you won't regret it. So that's so like your motivational about. speaker career is right. Exactly. Well exactly. <laughs> you know, get a few ducks in a line. You don't need to have them all on the line. And then like yeah. at some point just jump, you know, yeah. and trust that it will be okay. Right on. And lean on the people around you. That's why they're there. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, the best way to support it is to join the ABA. You get a lot of great benefits in addition to helping us out, including magazines, discounts to partners like Princeton University Press and Cornell Lab of Ornithology. There are a few more. You can find out how to do all of that at aba.org slash join. Special shout out this week to Eugene Todaro of Baton Rouge, Louisiana, who recently joined the ABA and noted this podcast as the reason for doing so. Thank you so much. Welcome to the ABA, Eugene. Executive director of the ABA and executive producer of this podcast is Wayne Klockner, who was surprised that Dorian did so well with goals on his big year riding a single bike because he always heard that goals require three to four cycles. Technical production is by John Lowry, who has seen peregrines and merlins while riding a single speed, but never a gear falcon. Additional help comes from Maggie Fitzgibbon and Greg Nice, who hope that Dorian ran the table on Piplio Sparrows during this year because they're both two wheels, twoies, toeies, two wheels. That's a stretch. You can find us online at aba.org on social media, most everywhere as American Birding Association on Blue Sky. We are at ABA Birds. I applaud Dorian's commitment to his bicycle big year, especially that he didn't count sea ducks because half of them are scooters. Questions, comments can come to podcast at aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Bird Like Tom. See you next week.